wonder if uh, you've ever entered a church where every single song that they're playing, you have no idea what the words are, no idea what the music is. In fact, everyone around you is hardly singing, they're energetically singing, but you have no idea what is going on. Everyone seems to know that the chorus is meant to be repeated twice, not three times. Everyone knows that the musical interlude is about to come in and you're not meant to sing, you're just meant to stand and listen. And worse still, maybe the words are actually quite familiar, but the song is completely different to what you expect. You start singing, amazing grace, and then all of a sudden, it's, my chains are gone, I've been set free. You realize that this church sings amazing grace, the new millennium version. And before too long, you feel like a complete doofus. As you can see, as wonderful as music is in bringing people together, music is also a really powerful tribal thing. Music unites, but it also divides. And even though it's often called a universal language, music is a boundary marker to mark out those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. When we experience that, it's like speaking to someone in a foreign language. The first thought that comes to our mind is, we don't belong here. Right here, this feeling of exclusion exposes a very fundamental need we all have the need to belong. When it comes to looking at the Psalms, our desire to join in and enjoy these rich and ancient songs is real. But often we feel like we don't have the key to get inside. We feel that we can't join in because these songs don't really belong to us. Or perhaps closer to the truth, we don't feel that we really belong to the people they're written for. And on the surface, it's true, isn't it? The Psalms tell of Israel's rescue, Israel's anguish, Israel's hopes. And most of all, they speak of Israel's relationship with God. For them, this was the most sacred thing of all the, in all of the Psalms, something that non-Jews did not and could not have. And so unless we begin to somehow identify with Israel, we feel like we have little access to what the Psalms speak about. And yet, Psalm 117 addresses the nations. It addresses all peoples. Sing praise to the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. This Psalm opens the door wide to all of us belonging to God's people. It's an open invite to God's praise session. And so my hope and prayer for you this morning is that we'll hear God's invitation to all peoples of every nation, of Jews and Gentiles, to come and join in worshipping him. Because God is standing at the doorway and with a generous heart he's saying, don't just stand on the outside, come inside. And here's the thing, because of God's love and faithfulness found in Christ Jesus, we can belong to God. That's what Psalm 117 ultimately points to. It shows that even though we're not God's people, we're called to join in universal praise. It shows that even though God is under no obligation to bring us into his family, we are secure in our belonging because of God's love and faithfulness. And it finally shows us that all of this means we can respond with hallelujah as God's people. So we start with verse 1. The summary is, 
everyone sing. Verse 1 is a universal call to praise God. Praise God. Extol him. Both of these words are commands to declare the beauty and excellent qualities of a person. And in this case, it's, it's God. Now, when I hear the word praise, I think about sports fans. The very first time I read the headline, is Roger Federer really the GOAT? I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I thought maybe he played tennis like a billy goat. Or maybe he grunted like one when he was doing a good shot. Or, or maybe he actually had a goatee. But then I realized the commentators referred to Federer and his movements as swift as a gazelle, not a goat. His on-court demeanor was quiet and gracious, and his face was actually clean-shaven. <laughs> goat didn't refer to his playing style or his appearance or his movement. Goat stands for greatest of all time. <laughs> so when Federer fans wave their placards saying, Federer the goat, they're giving praise to the one whom they think is the greatest tennis player of all time. I've got that one right now. Verse 1 calls everyone, all people, all nations, to speak of God's greatness, to lift up his name and declare him mighty, amazing and beautiful. It's to see the work of his hands, sunsets and sunrises, mountains and rivers, and be hushed with awe at the creator's genius. We do it naturally when we incessantly Instagram every photo of our holiday. But few of us would actually knowingly, willingly cheer God the goat. It's like it's to experience the goodness of, of what God provides in food and in jobs, relationships and friends, and to be able to say with real, sincere gratitude, God, you're awesome. But all of these things presuppose one thing, doesn't it? It, it presupposes that you know God, that you're in his orbit, that you're in his network of friends, that you belong to him. And so it, it's still a bit odd that the psalmist calls the nations and people to do this because normally in the psalms, they're the very ones who are hostile to God. In Psalm 2, the psalmist asks, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain against you and your anointed one? In Psalm 115, they're the ones who taunt Israel in her distress and say, where is their God? They're the ones who say God is not great. God is not mighty. God is not wonderful. And then on the other hand, all throughout the Psalms, it's the Israelites who belong to God. They were his treasured possessions. But if Israel had a special relationship with God, how come 117, Psalm 117 includes the whole world? Well, to answer that, we, we want to think back to where that God and Israel relationship begins. You see, our Psalm today, 117, is actually part of a set of Psalms, including Oh, starting from Psalm 113, going to 118. And it's called the Egyptian Hillel. And these were typically sung during the Passover. They were compiled to help the Israelites commemorate this very important event in their history, their rescue from Egypt, the Exodus. And as the Passover commemorated the Exodus, the people were also reminded of the special relationship that God had with Israel, which was forged with Moses. Yet before this relationship, there was an even earlier relationship that God had with Israel's ancestor, Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, God says to Abraham, 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Listen to that last bit again. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Psalm 117 is a reminder to Israel that God keeps all of his promises. God's promise wasn't that Israel alone would be saved and blessed. Instead, Israel was blessed as Abraham's descendants to be the bearer of God's blessing to the world and the witness to his love and faithfulness. And so the fact is, right from the very beginning, God had a place for people from every tribe and tongue, which this very psalm addresses, to belong to him. And here's the thing. When we gather on Sundays and we worship, we praise together and we pray together, when we do these things, we're a part of God's promised fulfillment to Abraham. When we come and are blessed by gathering in Christ's name, calling upon the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, we're both recipients of God's blessings and witnesses to his love and faithfulness. And so truly, Psalm 117 calls out to all nations and all peoples to praise God. But it doesn't stop there. We can sing because we're secure in our belonging to God. That's point two. It's on the basis of his own love and faithfulness. The next verse of Psalm 117 fleshes this out more. Now before we hone in onto verse two, I want to take a step back to look at Psalm 117 as a whole. There's something beautiful and symmetric about it, isn't there? The psalm begins and ends with praise. It's a hymn, a hymnic psalm. It follows a structure. First, call to worship and praise. And then secondly, it gives a reason for that praise. And finally, there's a command or an exhortation to praise. And when we look at it this way, I hope you see that the lines of this psalm quite literally points an arrow to the center at God. Sandwiched between verse 1 and last part of verse 2 is the line giving the reason for praise. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness, his faithfulness endures forever. Now, if we took a further step in and actually put the Hebrew words directly into English, it'd be quite literally. For great upon us is his love, and the faithfulness of the Lord is to eternity. Love and faithfulness together. This verse sets those words together right in the middle of the entire psalm, in the middle of this verse. And when we see this kind of pattern, it's a real hint that a psalmist wants us to focus in on these words. What we have here, bang, in the middle of the verse, in the middle of the psalm is God himself, revealed through two of his key defining characteristics. The word pair, love and faithfulness. It was one of the favorite word pairs that Israel would return to time and time again in her distress, especially in the time of her exile. And so first we look at the words themselves. The Hebrew word the NIV translates love is one which refers to loyal and pure love in the context of a relationship. This word speaks of God's favor on Israel, his unremitting goodwill to them. 
And there's a kind of reciprocal agreement in this relationship. It's, it's like the relationship between a husband and a wife, a parent or a, and a child, a ruler and his subject. There are expectations and responsibilities between two parties. It's like if you wash the car, I'll take the rubbish out. If you listen to my word, I'll give you a treat. But the difference with God is this love relationship is completely one-sided. It's one in which he is always the superior. He is always the giver. And he is always the initiator. Next, there's the word faithfulness. This actually is God's truthfulness. There's no falsehood in God. He will do exactly as he said he would do. With God, what you see is what you get. God is faithful. And that is a very integral part of who he is. And so the psalmist tells us why we're to praise God. It's simply because he is the God who loves with promises, promises that are true and kept. It's here that we consider again that question of belonging. You know, how is it that the nations which this psalm addresses can lay claim to belonging to Israel's God? But I want to step back again and ask you an even bigger question. In fact, how can anyone lay claim to belonging to God at all? You know, even though God chooses Israel to be his people, like every other human person that has ever lived, they desired his gifts more than God himself. They desired his power and his ruling authority over the world, but not over them. They wanted nothing more than to go their way. And the result of this we call sin. When we um, had our first child and he was still a baby, we, wanted, we, we went to a community-based service called Trisillian to help with baby sleep issues. It's a very common parent, early parenting issue. And when we got there, we realized that Trisillian not only provided help for parents and young babies with sleep issues, it, they also provided help for new parents with feeding issues. And as we shared stories of our baby troubles, one mother's story particularly stuck to my mind. She shared how incredibly draining it was to prepare food for a daughter, only to be rejected. They tried everything, hoping to find the right combination of flavors and color and texture that she would eat. In fact, they'd gone so far as ordering takeaway for themselves while making elaborate meals full of you know, funny and decorative things so that, that she would eat. And they were exhausted and dejected. And as she shared this, the father cried out, we don't even have time to look after ourselves. Isn't this the way we treat God? When God offers us and puts upon us his lavish love and we doubt it, we question it, we, we choose to reject it or hurl it back, isn't it an attack on God himself? Isn't it saying that we have some better way or idea? And that's what sin is. Sin is taking God's fatherly love and gifts and presenting him with a counterfeit version of it and say, that fake version is better than what you can give me. Now, when we read the Bible, it's easy to see Israel's missteps with God, their unfaithfulness, their idolatry. But Israel is meant to serve as a mirror for all of humanity. All created humankind are called to belong to him and give glory to him but all of us have failed to do so. That's why Romans 3.22 says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does God do? He shows his love and faithfulness in a way that only God can. Look at it again. First, God's love is great. In the original word here means strong, literally prevailing. The sense of prevailing over something is is a test of its strength, isn't it? It's like when you battle it out in an arm wrestle and you struggle and you strain, you tense your biceps and you eventually prevail over your opponent. God's love is strong. It prevails. It's in contrast to our love, our puny and weak love which fails. I sometimes wonder how many promises I've made which I've been unable to keep as a parent. When it comes to comparing God's perfect fatherly love with mine, my imperfections particularly stand out. As an imperfect father, I'm meant to love, protect, nurture my children. I'm meant to listen to the things which upset them. I'm supposed to, be, to raise awareness of their sin and lead them to confess. I'm meant to coach them, not with mindfulness theories, but with the words of Scripture, to train them up in the instruction of the Lord. Yet far too often my self-love overtakes me. I excuse myself for being too tired when I lose my temper with them. I choose to neglect their emotions in favor of indulging mine. I don't pick them up on the way they act out from their sinful hearts because it's just too difficult. My love for them is weak, while God's love for us is strong and prevailing. Never fails, not self-seeking, not easily angered, It keeps no record of wrongs. Second, his faithfulness is enduring. The quality of enduring means it's it's everlasting. One of the areas where our faithfulness is most often tested is our speech. Because we can measure our commitment and faithfulness to a relationship by the the trustworthiness of the the words we say. We give wishy-washy answers like, if this happens, then I'll, I'll come when this goes ahead. I'll let you know closer to the time. It's not just because I don't know when things happen or what might pass. More often than not, this kind of wishy-washy answer happens because I'm not prepared to make it happen no matter what. In effect, I'm saying to the other person, you can't count on me to be there for you. And God isn't like this. His word is truth and his faithfulness endures. What he has said remains true forever. What we hold in our hands, God's word, this Bible, is God's revealed account of his truth. It is unchanging. It is enduring because God himself is faithful. So where does that leave us? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, verses 8 to 9, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes this particular psalm, two verses later, to show that God's gospel offer is truly universal. The peoples of the world are called to praise God. How is it possible for sinners who hate God to be reconciled, adopted, and belong to him? Well, I think that the key to see is verse two. The key is to see verse two as the ground of God's rescue plan for all people. 
In other words, on the basis of God's strong love, on the basis of his enduring faithfulness, on God himself, God's rescue plan for the world is activated. The term ground zero became widely used after September 11, 2001, when two passenger jets hijacked by terrorists flew directly into the Twin Towers of the New York City skyline. And the very site where the Twin Towers were built and where they fell was popularly called Ground Zero. And in common speak, Ground Zero is the place, the event in time, which has history-changing significance. This term focuses our attention on the moments and places which turn the course of history and the trajectory of lives, even to those who come after it. Maybe you haven't thought about it much, but history has actually got many ground zeros. And for ancient Israel, their biggest ground zero was the Exodus. Their rescue from bondage by divine intervention shaped them from being a tribal group of families into a nation with their God. And in that great event, God's faithfulness to their forefather Abraham was cemented forever. God's love for them was made real. He lifted them out of slavery and put them into a land he had prepared for them. He blessed them. He grew them into a people. And even to this day, observant Jews who themselves have not seen the Exodus with their own eyes, they will observe the Passover because of the impact that event had on their cultural identity. But the Exodus will not be God's ultimate ground zero. In order to show his great love and faithfulness to the whole world, God prepared an earth-shattering event. God's ground zero was activated on a wooden stake on a hill. His global rescue began with a death. The cross where Jesus died was where God in his love stooped to kiss a rebel world. There in prevailing love and enduring faithfulness, he broke the curse which separated humanity from himself because of sin. And as Jesus died, God accepted his perfect sinless life as the ultimate sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. He makes the ultimate call out from the cross to all the peoples of the world. Come, see my son, follow him. So I want to ask you, where is your ground zero? Where do you come back to again and again to anchor your life and build on it? I don't know where you're at this morning, whether you're on the cusp of a life-changing promotion or a life-changing relationship with a significant other. But I want to tell you that for those who desire to belong to God, ground zero in human history happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And even though none of us in this room were present and there to see it, the accounts of the Bible record for us what happened at the very point that God entered our world. Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate act of God's strong love and unending faithfulness towards us. Christian, Psalm 117 calls you to praise God because he himself has promised you his strong love and enduring faithfulness. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what I want to draw your attention to is that at the very heart of it all is God who wants you to belong to him as much as you want to belong to something. We're forever trying to belong to something or someone. And perhaps you're not quite ready to make that God. But the thrust of this psalm is that if you were to fight his love, 
you would lose. If you were to play chicken with his faithfulness, he'd catch up with you. It's not a matter of you seeking God. It's a matter of him relentlessly pursuing you and not letting you go. When we've encountered God's strong love and enduring faithfulness cemented in his covenant, there's little we can do but worship. The right response is to praise him. And so the psalmist ends with a cry. Praise the Lord. The last line of this psalm is hallelujah. And there are at least three ways I can think of saying hallelujah. The first is in awe and wonder before God. Our hallelujah is a whisper. Because hallelujah is a surrender. The first fitting response to such a God is to surrender to him. Not just acknowledge him, but to rest in his faithful love. When the Thai boys were rescued from the cave earlier this year, one of the divers who rescued them was an Australian anaesthetist. And he had to lightly sedate them before they were able to be taken out. The rescuers were worried that if the boys struggled or fought, they would endanger both their own lives and that of the rescuers. The boys had to learn to completely trust their rescuers. They had to surrender to that rescue plan. We like to be called fighters. We like to prevail. And it just seems with the circumstances of our lives right now, everything is a wrestle and a struggle. We're scared that if we give up, we would lose. We would have been overcome. But today I want to invite you back to God's ground zero to see the cross. Everything begins there. Whatever mess your life or your heart is in right now, however badly you see the consequences of sin, either your own or others, cutting you off from God's presence in your life, I want you to know that what Jesus did on the cross is to show you God's prevailing love. In Jesus, you are loved and you belong to God. Let his love prevail over your resistance. It was at the cost of his son's broken body and real blood shed that his love melt away your hardness and surrender to him. Surrender with a hallelujah. But then after our first whisper, hallelujah is, is a massive comfort. Some of you are weighed down by guilt. What does it mean when even after you believe in Jesus, you still sin? We still seek our own good at others' expense. Or we say hurtful words designed to belittle others. We mock others and discredit them. We imagine and act on lustful impulses which aim to use others. And no matter how hard we try to reform ourselves, we're still stuck in a defeated circle. My friend, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his steadfast love is stronger. Stronger than our sin, our lies, and our lust. Praise the Lord that his faithfulness to his word is enduring, more enduring than our hasty confessions, our sorries, and our pledges to never, ever again. What comfort we have in Jesus Christ, whose blood washes us of guilt so that we're declared not guilty. Christ Jesus, whose blood pays our ransom price so that we belong securely to God and nobody else. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because of Jesus, we belong to God and he to us. And if we belong to God, we belong to him both individually and as a people. In church, we're among the company of broken-hearted sinners, of damaged goods, 
redeemed. And one day we'll look forward to a new day. So finally, hallelujah, is our hopeful joy proclaimed. Do you have a vision, brothers and sisters, of where we're headed? Do you know what the Christian's destiny is? It's that great chain of promises for those in Christ in Romans 8, 29 to 30. Here it is again. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he, predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The certainty of this word is rooted in God himself. If we are believers in Christ, what God had promised millennia ago to Abraham to bless him with descendants and have them bless all the nations has already begun to come to fruition in us. We are part of the fruit of that end time harvest. We're among the ones whom Abraham saw in the sky as numerous as the stars. And we'll be among the great multitude of Revelation 19 who shout hallelujah. So let this joyful hope take hope take hold as we look back to what Jesus has done and forward to what God has prepared for us. As we finish, I want to bring you to the first question of an old teaching aid for Christians in the 16th century. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer begins like this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 117, we're invited to the very heart of God Almighty, who welcomes us with prevailing love and unending faithfulness. We belong to him, he to us, and us to one another. Hallelujah. Well, friends, we're going to stand and sing in response. Uh, how can we not but sing about God's greatness? So let's stand and sing How Great Is Our God. <laughs>